We have to disrupt ourselves before other people disrupt us. There's no playbook. Saying no to technology is not an option. Fundamentally, I think the biggest problem in digital is not enough discussion about what really moves the needle and how soon. The array of challenges that are coming is so different and so much more rapid fire than we've seen before in this industry. Welcome to Disruption Matters, a podcast produced by Private Equity International in partnership with series sponsor Alex Partners that delves into the forces that are reshaping our world and how the private markets can not only address these changes, but emerge stronger from them. Over the past five episodes, we've delved into all kinds of disruptions from changing workforce dynamics to cybersecurity fears. But today, we're talking about how best to plan and budget with all those issues in mind. I'm Rob Kotecki, and for this, I'm joined by my colleague, Eric Fish. Eric, how are you? Not too shabby, but uh, where's Chase? Uh, he's out managing the most wonderful disruption of all, a newborn. No doubt Chase is getting a crash course in the unexpected as we speak. But quick question for you. Do you drop a budget every month? I want to say yes. That's convincing. Uh, I budget every month, always aware that I can't predict everything that might happen. So I make sure that I've got funds to tap in the case of an emergency. But over the last few years, I don't blame folks for thinking there isn't an emergency fund big enough to address all the potential downsides. Or upsides. I can see how businesses get so conservative that they end up passing on opportunities and ceding the market to a competitor that's willing to bet that things might improve. Exactly. I've been looking forward to this episode because it feels like a chance to translate everything we've been talking about into an actual strategy, one that balances fears and opportunities in a way that makes an enterprise resilient enough to emerge from times like these even better than before. You sure sound upbeat. Every industry has a market leader that found a way to thrive regardless of the factors out of their control, but... That sounds more like you. But... That balance is hard to strike, and in the moment, it might take a little bit of faith along with a focused, relentless execution to pull it off. And that's why it's time to talk to the folks with the expertise and experience in doing just that. It's only natural to look at last year and use that as a basis for this coming year, but Lisa Donahue, co-lead of Americas in Asia for Alex Partners, suggests that might not be the best approach. You can't really look at historical trends to see what's going to happen in the future. You have to look at much more macro, what's happening geopolitically, what's happening regulatory-wise, what's happening from a commodity pricing perspective. And remember that things change and they change fast. There's so many challenges facing business leaders right now. There's a multitude of interconnected and self-reinforcing forces that the executives are looking at any one time. Flex Flexibility, agility, and looking around corners are more critical than ever before. That makes a lot of sense. So what does it mean for companies planning for 2023? It means budgeting as usual isn't going to cut it. You need an active view of costs and revenues, and that means a cross-functional look at what you think the business is going to do. A zero-based budget mentality, but more than that, it's understanding what drives value and what doesn't. And interestingly, most companies take this approach only occasionally, and they do it only if there's kind of an episodic reason to take a look at it. But I think it's a powerful capability that reveals opportunities for both structural change, workload reduction, process improvements, where you should be investing, where you shouldn't. And it brings up a whole bunch of opportunities for companies to think about capital spend and strategic spend, where you may want to stop doing some things and start doing others. One other point, I think that similar rigor should be applied to the revenue forecasts. Most budgets look keenly at costs. 
That's why if you really think about it as a CFO, you kind of discount the revenue forecasts and look at that kind of variability, which CFOs from an expense side never really do that. They really tend to dig more in that. So the advice is to ignore your CFO? I doubt that's her point. Here's what she's actually saying. I think focusing first on key customers, having candid, regular conversations with them, and thinking about every change in revenue, where it's coming from, proof as best you can establish it in the numbers in the plan, you know, tracking the projections, variances, monthly, quarterly reviews, look at your customers, look at where the profitability is coming from, and most importantly, where it's not coming from, moving quickly, acting now, preparing for tough times. And in the event that we don't have a downturn, we don't have a recession, you'll have a stronger, bolder business and build up a nice financial cushion that's ready with a war chest so that you can, you know, proactively target in strategic investment. Gabe Masanza, a partner with the resource group at Huron Capital, echoes a lot of that sentiment as he talks about what their process looks like now. Looking at last year, I would say the last three years is really not the right answer these days anymore. We work with founder-led companies and usually we're the first institutional investor. And so we have a lot of work around cash flow forecasting and things of that nature. And budgeting, very honestly, is a process that isn't commonplace for a lot of the companies, at least when we get into it. And so what we try to push is really the idea of cash and understanding where the cash is coming from, understanding where your balances are, because that is the only thing that you have available to you that gives you the flexibility to weather tough times as well as to take opportunities that might be available to you. We like to have our companies look at operating metrics as much as possible to really give them a bit of that canary in the coal mine perspective, right? The more that we can understand on a daily basis, whether you're winning or losing on any given day, any given week, the faster you're going to be able to make decisions. And this applies all the way from pipeline metrics and understanding what my conversion rate is on my sales folks, what my cost per lead is for getting new customers, all the way down to what is it costing me or how effective and efficient am I at deploying my resources? Do people have what they need every day to go and deploy the service uh, or build the product? Are they waiting around? Is there a loss for a dwell time and things of that nature? Once the financials come out, it's too late. You're already in your back foot. That sounds disconcerting. Only for folks who drag their feet. But there's another part of Gabe's resiliency program that's worth stressing. We push our companies to diversify their services and to diversify their geographies and their customer bases. It's always in fashion to do that. Usually when you have recessions and even when you had something like COVID as a sort of a very immediate downturn, it doesn't affect all parts of the economy the same way. It doesn't affect all geographies the same way. And so moving towards that diversification of services, of geographies, of customers is something that we're also pushing our companies to, to do a lot of, to really be able to weather things if they take a downturn, which then leads you to think about Salesforce effectiveness and what customers are you really going after? How do you think about the profitability of a customer? How do you think about the services that you're offering them? Are you a required service because of some sort of regulatory aspect of it? Or are you something that is discretionary, which means that your services may shift on you, right? Maybe you'll eventually go do it, but your customer maybe moves that order off for a fair bit of time. Gabe's other principle is to vet every assumption, and not just once a year. We also are very open with the idea that we create the budgets, but very honestly, we are in a monthly reforecasting world these days. And so we all have to be very flexible based on what we see from the operating metrics to be able to make decisions in real time. A lot of companies have gotten experience in figuring out what happens when a very clear event happens, like COVID did in 2020. That was a learning curve. 
that people had and all the companies, at least in our portfolio, came out probably a good 10 to 15% more efficient from an SGNA perspective. But the difficulty with what's going on now is that these recessions tend to happen very slowly. And so it's not until you're well into it that you realize it's happening. Well, that's not comforting. Maybe so, but there's nothing wrong with a reality check. Joshua Cherisito is the partner and CFO of Startup Health, an early stage digital healthcare VC platform. He has nearly a decade of experience in middle market private equity and has a little more faith in taking a historical perspective. The past always gives invaluable clues as to the art of the possible for the future. You know, that being said, there certainly is a lot of historical noise that is not a good representation of what next year will offer these days. I believe the planning question is whether an exercise of adjusting LTM actuals. LTM here refers to the last 12 months which in a regular market, in a stable market, is a good anchor for projections, in this market would be a painful and unproductive rabbit hole to jump down. You know, if the adjustments to actual would be a book of explanations on their own, then you would be better served to build projections directly from assumptions instead, at least at first. This was a recurring theme in our conversations. Ignore what happened last year and plan around observations of what's happening right now. But those are still assumptions. And it raises the question, how do we improve the assumption-making process? I know there's a temptation to play pessimist. Bad news and worst-case scenarios just feel more accurate. But Lisa Donahue argues that the best plans can respond to good luck as well. In every scenario, there's a winner and a loser, right? I think what folks should think about is a mild, moderate, and severe downturn. And also potentially an upside. Think about what the impacts to your business are as a whole and in separate parts. And get specific. Where are you most vulnerable? Is it a drop in demand? Is it a supply chain snarl? What kind of actions can you take to mitigate and who should take them? Start thinking about an action plan as well. It's not just about the mathematics. It's actually the operational point of it. So looking at, you know, three scenarios and three responses, levels you can pull, look at short-term, medium-term, long-term actions things that can serve cash. Cash is really important in times like this, and you need to understand where your cash is and why it's where it is. Think about hiring travel freezes, reductions in discretionary spending, some of the easier areas, you know, marketing spend, development spend, things like that. The second lever to pull if a downturn is deep or long is probably a lot more painful. And this is looking at, you know, delaying product launches. Maybe the market's not ready for it right now because of what's happening in your industry and with your customers. Thinking about capital spending, deploying it differently, or maybe reducing it as well, except for, of course, maintenance or compliance type things. Think about a crisis playbook, actions to take if the business suddenly finds itself in deep trouble. Think about reorg, selling off non-core assets or businesses, and look at your competitors. Again, as I said, there's winners and losers, and maybe you're in a position where you've got a nice cash war chest, and maybe now is the time for some strategic acquisition. So it's really being really nimble and really flexible in your thinking about, is there an opportunity to take advantage from a competitive perspective of where you're sitting and where some of your competitors are sitting. If the business does go down, you've got a bit of a game plan to start thinking about when to act. And if it doesn't, you've got a nice strategic roadmap and you've done some research on some of your competitors. A lot of the principles that Lisa laid out there are reflected in Gabe's process. We actually had some very specific experience here uh, recently. We started thinking about this really over the summer, very honestly, around recession planning and downturn planning, if you will. 
And one of the companies I was working with in our portfolio, they, they were sort of struggling because they were trying to analyze every last bit of information and trying to think about all possible scenarios and, and honestly being a little bit paralyzed. And the feedback I gave them was, look, just think about what happens if your revenue goes down 5, 10, 15, 20%? What happens if your costs go up 5, 10, 15, 20%? What actions would you take if that's your new normal? The cost side is relatively easy, I would say. It's straightforward, mostly within your control. Obviously, we've seen labor increases happening and supply chain increases across the board happening here recently. And the thing that we then talk about is on the pricing side as well, is what are you doing on the pricing to make sure that you're staying ahead of some of these things that are coming at you? With that said, we actually, it might sound a little bit counterintuitive, but we play in a lot of fragmented industries. And there's a little bit of excitement, very honestly, at something of a downturn happening where we're able to have a, a large swath of maybe competitors that are nipping at our heels that may be smaller than us that no longer can sort of sustain themselves, right? And that opens up opportunities for us. But again, all of that assumes that you've done the work up front to make sure that you have a good cash position. Because if you're constantly thinking about cash as a CEO, then you're not thinking about strategy or a CFO, just full stop. Right. You cannot do both at the same time. It's very, very difficult to think about both at the same time. And so, again, with Lisa and her turnaround experience, and I've done some of that in my past as well, you know, first thing you do is cash. Once you can figure out cash, once you figure out the cash flows, then we can talk about anything else. And I always talk about earning the right to be strategic. And you earn the right to be strategic by doing the basics well, which primarily involves cash in these situations. So I'm getting the sense that cash matters here. Cash may be crucial. But I think the last few years have left everyone aware of the likelihood of black swan events that no one can predict. So it's hard to trust that even the best laid plans or the biggest war chests will be sufficient. And that leaves companies having to find better ways of seeing around the corner. One of the ideas that kept coming up in this conversation is a closer collaboration among all stakeholders to vet and improve those assumptions from internal divisions to customers. Here's Lisa again. If you think about it, the PNL owners are much closer to the business, much closer to what's happening in the environment. They're going to be the first to notice slowing orders, growing inventory, delayed collections. But the flip side is they don't think about the cost of capital and they don't look at the balance sheet as a source of funds. They may be missing kind of the broader significance of what they're seeing. So making sure that the different functionalities across a business are connected and talking and understanding the significant KPIs and what's happening is important. I also think when you're doing your monthly, quarterly reviews, go across your PL, your balance sheet, and your cash flow. And again, don't make it just be a finance-led type of review. It should be finance, who is the kind of single source of the truths from a numbers perspective, but the folks running the business should be the ones behind it explaining what's going on so that everybody's on the same page and marching in the same direction. I think there's a real premium on transparency and collaboration. That's Joshua from Startup Health again. You know, the planning exercises will be most effective when there's real openness about the challenges that we will likely be facing and time spent collaborating with all stakeholders to get the best plans to address those eventualities. Getting the most out of the full team, not just us, but our stakeholders is extremely important. You know, this includes prudent risk mitigation, but is really preparing opportunities to create resilient companies of quantifiably sustainable value. And so for that, I think that requires us helping our companies marshal all the stakeholders to use the planning process to build consensus, which will better weather any volatility. 
you know, bringing investors and employees into the planning process, which may have been more only the deal leads and portfolio company management in the past, will be an important ingredient for success, in my opinion. You know, we're spending extra time to get all hands on deck, discuss where we're heading and what we're trying to accomplish. So we as an organization can be better prepared, not just in the C-suite, but across the organization for things that may be coming in the horizon with regard to our portfolio. And also to marshal the whole team to, you know, get in front of our management teams and make sure that we're communicating often and as transparent as possible so that we'll be able to adapt and react as quickly as possible as things change in the market. Gabe stressed the need to look outside the organization to vet any of those assumptions. Staying close to customers and understanding where they are in their thought process, right? If you think about decisions made of customers affect you and then downstream, you affect your suppliers. Someone at your customer knows what's going on the day before you do. Go to lunch with them. Understand what's going on. Talk to people at all levels of the organization. Hey, what are you seeing? Are you, you, know, are you guys concerned? How are you thinking about your capital deployment this year? Are you guys more or less invested? How are you seeing your sell-through? And if you're in a retail environment, I would really try to understand sell-through to understand what my customers' inventory levels are so that then I can apply my own inventory levels according to that. I think a lot of companies don't quite think of it that way. They sort of just wait for the order to come, especially in sort of the smaller companies that we operate in. Now, if that's the rigor applied to current portfolio companies, I can only imagine how these times are impacting the plans being developed during diligence of new investments. Here's Gabe again. We're probably spending about 25% of our time during due diligence on risk identification and making sure that we understand what we're buying, if you will. The majority of what we do during diligence is value creation planning, right? When we buy the company, we want there to be no questions as to what the strategy of the company is between ourselves and the team that's leading it. We want to already have a pretty good sense of what the first 100 days are going to look like. We want to have a pretty good sense of what the investments we're going to make into companies, because very honestly, we often underwrite reductions in EBITDA the first year because we're making investments. We know we're making investments in the company because we know we have to professionalize them. And so we're really focused on, from a diligence perspective, on already creating that plan so we hit the ground running, as opposed to perhaps what used to happen was, okay, we're going to do this diligence and essentially get comfortable with the investment. And then once we buy the company, we're going to have a strategy session with the management team, and then we'll develop the plans and, and off we go. By that time, we've already wasted three, four months. And very honestly, it's just not a very good use of our resources. And so we've shifted everything as much as possible up front. And that includes every single aspect of due diligence, all the way from the Q of E and then the, what we call finance ops, which is really making sure that, again, these finance organizations that we're buying are not very mature that we know how to close the books, that we know how to do a cash flow statement. Everything that we're supposed to have is there from the very beginning. We're doing human capital diligence as it relates to org structures, compensation structures, as it relates to the, the dynamics with the management teams. And if we need to fill gaps from an executive perspective, we are very quickly hiring search firms to go in and fill those and have job descriptions ready by the time we close companies. Don't get it right every single time, but that's honestly the intent is to do as much as possible before we actually get in and own the company. Here's Josh again. When we look at new investments in the past, when we had seen basically a decade of somewhat up and to the right, you can really plan on just having base cases that we can argue about and then tinker from there. We're now moving towards fleshing out multiple sets of assumptions, allowing for a more dynamic posture using quarterly check-ins on the planning side 
but to a more dynamic conversation in the IC meetings around potential new investments. Lisa brings up the point that this extra rigor during diligence is necessary for a reason that should be obvious to everyone by now. We know that it's likely going to be tougher for some companies to actually get some financing. We're already seeing that in the market. And it means, you know, the days of cheap money are gone, at least for the foreseeable future. I think it means that PE firms and investors are going to be thinking about deal structure, percentage of equity versus percentage of debt a little bit differently. And they're going to have to rely more on all of the things we've been talking about from a diligence perspective. What's important? What is the management team? What's the operational plan? What kind of risks are they facing? A deal that 12 months ago would have been a very simple deal to do because the collateral is there. It's a solid company. Shocking how much more expensive it was to get it financed. Shocking how long it took and the levels of diligence that the lenders went through in order to get this financing done. I think that you're going to have to be tighter as a company on your information, on your data, on your working with your lenders when you're looking for some financing. And the PE guys may find themselves putting a bit more equity into their deals. And back to Gabe again. I mean, we're seeing in real time how interest rates are significantly higher from banks. And so we're having to understand that we have to perhaps over-equitize certain companies with the idea that potentially down the line, we can reset those capital structures once things flip. And then we're also trying to really understand maybe risks that we'd be willing to take as it relates to certain end markets that our companies might have as we're looking to buy them. We're saying, okay, maybe I need to think twice about retail as being 20, 30 of a particular company's revenue, maybe I'm not comfortable with that anymore like I used to be a year ago, right? And so in real time, adjusting that aspect of it and thinking through, is this a good company that can last through this period or is this a company that I'm going to buy and immediately go into crisis mode, which we really can't afford to do in the capital structure that we're getting into now. Which is another way of saying there's no room for capital structure that doesn't afford the company real flexibility to address changing conditions even something as disruptive as COVID. No one's expected to be able to predict these black swan events, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't think about ways to be ready for something so that you've got you know, flexibility and you're a bit nimble because there's always going to be some sort of bump in the road. And the other fact is most companies see danger too late. And part of that is because as you're building it up, you know, business unit budgets think about revenues and costs and items on the income statement, and they don't necessarily tie it to cash flow and balance sheet items. I know I feel like Gabe and I keep getting back to cash, but it's really the lifeblood of a company, whether it's in crisis or it's not in crisis, if it's just an ability to opportunistically do things strategically and gives you lots of different options from a strategic perspective when you've got cash and you've got time to think things through. So cash is still king. Sure. Provided you do all the work in determining where that cash should go when the stuff hits the fan. Like most topics we cover in this series, it can start to feel like an audio doom scroll of everything that's making life harder at the moment. But I want to end with Gabe, who I think captures the attitude of the industry right now. 
what we're not doing is backing down. And I don't think anyone in the private equity world should be backing down in these situations. I mean, this is what we're paid to do. We're paid to sort of manage these sorts of risks. And this is exactly when we should be shining, very honestly. So we are not backing down on investments. We actually think that this is a great opportunity to continue to deploy capital because there's going to be good companies that get swept into this recession, right? And they might be in a situation where they have to sell for whatever reason. And so it's a great opportunity for us to deploy our capital and put fresh money into these situations. So it's, it's really interesting dynamic. And I think if you look back to other times there have been recessions in companies, and you look at companies that really invest and have continued to put the same R&D as a percent of revenue, even go up during recessions, tend to come out of them far faster, tend to come out of them at a much higher level than they entered these recessions. And that's the perspective to keep in mind, no matter what happens next. The Disruption Matters podcast has been a team effort, and we appreciate all the people who've been instrumental in putting it together over these six episodes. Special thanks to Chase Collum, who led the project, David Willett, Lawrence Zverchek, Mark Millet, Adam Kapiser, Pio Blanco, Chris Wood, Graham Kerr, Hannah Roberts, and even Russman at PEI. Thanks to Aaron Gomolinski, Susie Albazetti, Ed Canaday, and Emily Gallagher at Alex Partners for your help behind the scenes. To the folks at ProSec, FTI, Gashalter, Middle M Creative, Kext, Joel Frank, Transmission Private, and Peercom, thank you for all your help coordinating guests for the series. Thanks, of course, to all our guests on the series. And last but not least, thanks to all our listeners. For anyone who's new to the cast, please take a moment to subscribe on your preferred podcast channel. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a comment. Theme song for the Disruption Matters podcast series is Against the Clock by Rhythm Scott. I'm Rob Kitecki. And I'm Eric Fish. Goodbye for now.